Good morning, Lighthouse. Sure is good to see you all this morning. If you're joining us live here in person or joining us online, we are glad that you're a part of the worship service this morning. If it's your first time here, my name is Doug Swink, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And uh, one of the things that, that we are doing at Lighthouse is really trying to make an impact in our community along with uh, around the world. And so every month we have a kind of missionary or mission of the month. And this month we are uh, really looking to emphasize Kalamazoo loaves and fishes. And every day Kalamazoo loaves and fishes gives away 700 individual meals. And so uh, we're, what we're trying to do is just to help them out, to help support them. And so what, what Lighthouse is prepared to do is that we have these bags out in the lobby. And uh, all we're asking you to do is grab a bag and fill it up with groceries. Now, I know some of you may be saying, well, what kind of groceries, Doug? Okay, so some of you may be saying, what kind of groceries, Doug? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Okay, so on there, we've just tried to help you out by putting a list of groceries that they're in need of, like jelly and jam, cereal, canned soups, meals in a box, all kinds of stuff. And so you've got that, just fill the bag up and then bring it right back here to Lighthouse and we'll make sure that Kalamazoo Loaves and Fishes gets it, okay? So it's just one more way for us as a church to reach out and meet the needs of our community where God has placed us. So I hope that you will certainly consider being a part of God's outreach into the, uh, into the Kalamazoo community. So with that being said, today is an incredible day. In fact, on June 5th, the message you are about to hear went out to hundreds of thousands, if not over a million different people. This particular message went out on June 5th. Please listen to it carefully. forgot to turn my thing on. There you go. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. That was the order of the day for June 5th, 1944, from Supreme Allied Expeditionary Forces Commander General 
Dwight Eisenhower on the eve of the invasion of Normandy. 77 years ago today, 77 years ago today, June 6th, 1944, marked the greatest assembly of the greatest naval armada ever assembled in the history of the world from before then or since then. It was make or break time for the allies of the free world fighting against the axis of evil, Nazi Germany and Italy. Nazi Germany had a stranglehold on the throat of freedom. And the only way to wrench loose those fingers of tyranny from the throat of freedom was to meet them face to face on the battlefield. Operation Overlord, as it was known, was headed up by General Dwight D. Eisenhower, who would go on to become a war hero and then president of the United States. The Allies had been funneling men and material onto the island of England for three years now, making it basically a floating surplus store, okay? We're talking about hundreds of thousands of soldiers, men and women coming together, uh, uh, howitzers, tanks, ships, landing craft, guns, ammunition, medical supplies, food, fighters, bombers, all of these coming together. And the plan was incredibly complex. It meant meeting the fortified Nazi lines at their strongest point, a 50-mile section of beach uh, on the coast of France known as Normandy. And Germany had been preparing for this one day for years. They, they had what they called the Atlantic Wall, protecting Fortress Europa. And general officer, the, the officer in charge of the Atlantic forces for the Germans, Erwin Rommel, had been doing everything he could to protect from this invasion. In fact, they had strung just hundreds of miles of barbed wire across beaches. They had put fortifications on the beaches. This is known as Rommel's asparagus, where they would take these trees that they cut down and they would tip them with mines. And they poured hundreds and millions of, of, of pounds of, and tons of concrete to build uh, uh, pillboxes and fortresses in which they would encase their guns. All of this to protect this 50-mile stretch of beaches that the Allies would attack. Five different beaches with code names like Gold, Sword, Juno, Utah, and the fabled and infamous Omaha Beach, where over 4,600 men from the United States lost their lives just trying to claim that, sim that single beach. Over five thousand sea vessels were used and driven through 10 lanes cleared by minesweepers to simply get to those beaches on Normandy, France. At 631 on June 6, 1944, the first ramp dropped on the first troop carrier, having those different men flood the beaches to attack the Axis forces. And it's amazing to think what went into that one day. That first day, June 6, 1944, 150,000 troops, 1,500 tanks, 
5,300 ships and landing craft, 12,000 airplanes, and 20,000 airborne troops in one day to start that battle, to begin to bring freedom to those who had been terrorized and under this oppression of tyranny by the Nazi Germans. And you know, there's a significant connection between what it took to bring victory on that day and what it's taking today for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, what it takes today to see victory over the oppression and tyranny of Satan himself. You may have heard scripture says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. There certainly are wars going on around the world and saber rattling in Russia and in China, Hong Kong, different places. But the greatest battle taking place is not on earth, it's in the heavenly realms between the forces of tyranny and darkness and evil and the God of light. And so today I want to talk a little bit about some things that we have to practice, that we have to do in order to be part of that victory parade in heaven, in order to see victory between the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness and evil. Three things, three things that I believe that we saw in the men and women on 1944 that took place and three things that you and I need to capitalize on today, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. But before we jump into those, let's take a moment and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to meet freely without the fear of soldiers interrupting our time together, without fear of, of evil coming in in the face of a, of a dictator telling us that we can't meet. Father, that men and women 74 years ago hold the line, held the line, so that we could meet together today. And yet, God, we understand that there is a battle going on. There is a battle raging outside of this world. As your word says, there is a battle raging in the heavenly realms. And Father, I pray that you would help us today to see what it's going to take for us to be a part of the victory over sin and death. God, we lift these things to you and pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three things, as I said, that you and I need to begin to understand that it's going to take for us to be part of that victory. Because the war is raging in the heavenly realms, but the war is raging over your soul. The war is raging over the soul of, of your family members who don't know Jesus, over your co co-workers, over your, your fellow students, over your neighbors who don't know God as Savior. And that battle is raging. So what's it going to take for us? If we are followers of Jesus, if we are his disciples, what are the things that we see that we need to do? The first thing we need to do is sacrifice. Sacrifice, it's interesting to me that when we read in the scripture, sacrifice seems to be a thread that runs throughout scripture. And the epic moment, the climax of God's, God's example 
of sacrifice was when he came to earth in the form of a human being. He came to earth and died a grisly, gruesome, terrible, painful death. Why? Because he loves you and he loves me. He was willing to give it all. He was willing to sacrifice everything because of that love. And every good soldier knows that they have to be willing to sacrifice for the greater good of the cause. In fact, that sacrifice may include their very own death on the battlefield. And any and every battle and war has seen this in the end run. And it's amazing to me when, when I study World War II, when I look at what, what happened and what took place, not just at the battlefront, but also on the home front. Now, last hour, there were a number of our, our um, elder citizens who could remember in their child, and there may be a couple in here today, who can remember back to when they were kids during the war. That it wasn't just the men that were on the battlefield. It was the people on the home front who were sacrificing, who were, who were, were willing to give up what they had in order to see victory and freedom for the rest of the world. They had to ration things like oil. They rationed things like, like uh, shoes and food. They rationed sugar and coffee. Why? So that the men at the front could have what they needed. They rationed things like, like metals, like aluminum and steel and things like that. And families paid the price. It was the first time really in history where you saw women going to work in order to, because the men were out fighting on the front lines, the women were, were in the factories doing the work. You probably, some of you remember that, that poster, that famous poster of that woman who's standing there and it says, yes, we can. And her arm is like three times the size of mine. I would not want to meet her in a dark alley. All right. But there was so much sacrifice going on. Sacrifice for what we believe in. Sacrifice for what we value. March 30th, 1981, 40 years ago this past March, President Ronald Reagan was exiting the Washington Hilton Hotel, preparing to get into his limousine after giving a speech at the Washington Hilton Hotel, and uh, as he was going out to his limousine waving to, to people, John Hinckley Jr. opened fire, trying to assassinate the president of the United States. And what's interesting is that the heroes of the day were the secret service agents who had been specifically trained to trade their life, to sacrifice their life for that of the president of the United States. They were willing to sacrifice their lives for the greater good. Now, whether you agree with President Reagan or President, you know, Clinton, Biden, uh, whoever, it doesn't matter. That's not the role of those secret servicemen is not to die if they agree with the policies of the current president. Their job is to sacrifice their life for a greater good, for a greater value. And as you can see in this picture, and those of you who were alive back then on March 30th, 1981, you remember seeing those Secret Service agents flying into action, diving on top of John Hinckley Jr. 
one of those one of those secret service agents literally took the president of the United States and threw him into the limousine and dove on top of him to shield the president from bullets from the gun of John Hinckley Jr. Willing to sacrifice their very own life for the greater good. Some of them did it out of duty. God did it out of love. So what does that mean for you and for me today? I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, God connects that idea of sacrifice to life. Jesus gave his life in the hopes that we would turn. It says in scripture that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That flicker of hope that was there, that maybe at some point, like the prodigal son, we would turn and come back to him. It was the hope that drove Jesus to the cross to sacrifice his life for you and me. It was the love that God has for you that drove Jesus to the cross. And usually I say this at the beginning of the message, but I'll say it for you now. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want to make sure you hear this, that God loves you. And the cross at Calvary is the symbol of sacrifice that God was willing to pay for you to know him and be with him. This idea of sacrifice runs through scripture. In fact, there's a fantastic example that Jesus gives to us he and his disciples, they were at the temple, and they're just kind of hanging around, sitting around, and people are coming, and they're bringing their offerings to the temple. And for especially wealthy people, this was a big deal. It wasn't something they did in secret. It was something they actually proclaimed. They would come in, and there would be a big, like a big deal made when they would come in and drop their bag of money inside of the offering container. And it was at this point that Jesus caught something, something incredible, something so important that he was willing to call his disciples together to check it out. It says that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. So you picture this, they're at the temple and Jesus, I think on purpose, purposely sits down across from where people are dropping their offering into the temple treasury. And he sits down and he begins to watch the people who are dropping their money in. And people who are wealthy or, you know, they're dropping, hey, check this out. Or maybe they had someone in front of them, check out Doug Swing's about to drop in his offering, right? And this is all going on. And it says many rich people threw in large amounts of money. Just threw it in. Okay, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. Now, now I want you to stop for just a second. I want you to picture this. So Jesus is sitting there and he's, he's, he's got his disciples around him. And they're kind of watching Jesus, and they're watching the people, what's going on, right? And all these people are coming by, making a big deal about dropping their money into the offering. Hey, look at me, look how much I'm bringing. 
And here's the incredible thing. As the disciples are watching all of that chaos and commotion of those people, who catches the eye of God? It was a woman who dropped in two coins that amounted to nothing. I mean, almost virtually nothing. And Jesus says, guys, guys, come here, check this out, check this out. Did you, did you just see that? And they're like, did you see what? Did you just see that widow? What widow? They're not, the, the disciples aren't paying attention to the poor woman who's dropping that in. They're paying attention to the, the rich people, right? They're looking at the rich people probably like some of us look at wealthy people and go, oh, wow, I wish I had enough money to drop a bag of money like that in the arm. How awesome would that be if I was that wealthy? That's what the disciples are I imagine that's what they're thinking. They're not paying attention. But who, you ready for this? Who catches the eye of God? Who catches the eye of God in this moment? It's not the wealthy people. Why? Jesus goes on to say, he says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. And the disciples are like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Did you not just see that giant bag of money that dude just dropped in there? Did you see what she dropped in? She dropped in two little coins that amount to like a pitiful couple of pennies. What do you mean that she dropped in more? And I think that Jesus just got kind of quiet. He let it sit there for a moment. And he let them ponder it, the, the insanity of the comment that he just made. And then he dropped the bomb. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in, and what's the next word? Everything. She, in her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. Interesting, isn't it? God doesn't care about the amount. God cares about the heart. God doesn't care about how much we give. It's why we give. It's the heart of the matter. And all of those people that were dropping in huge sums of money, their heart was self-glorification. But when this widow dropped her money in, it was an act of faith, right? We know that because Jesus said she dropped in everything, everything she had to live on. And God says that her sacrifice was way more valuable. Sacrifice. It's interesting because it gets hard for us to sacrifice in love when we've been kicked, right? When we offer our heart, when we offer out in love to other people and all we get is kicked and beat down and laughed at and scorned and someone takes our heart and throws it on the ground and kicks it across the room. And it's hard to sacrifice in that scenario, right? Check out what C.S. Lewis said. Lewis said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything 
and your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly be broken. If you want to be sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. That was where God went in his sacrifice for you and for me. He was willing to sacrifice it all for you and me because he loves us. In fact, Jesus told us in John 15, 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for their friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so let me just quick, before we jump to the next point, let me ask you this. What sacrifice is God calling you to make? And maybe some of you are going, whoa, 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 I didn't know God was asking me to sacrifice anything. Right. So maybe the first prayer for some of us is to say, God, what is it that you want me to sacrifice? What are you willing to sacrifice for your family? For those family members who don't know Jesus? What are you willing to sacrifice for your neighbors? For your fellow workers? For your fellow students? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice in order to see victory in their lives? What are you willing to give up in the sacrifice for those people on your circle of seven? Those those people that God has put in your way to begin praying for and to to encourage them through your life and service to maybe see God. What are you willing to sacrifice? Because God gave it all to show his love for you. So the first thing is sacrifice. The second thing is loyalty. Loyalty. The second thing is loyalty, and it's interesting because that is a characteristic that in generations past has been a characteristic that's been held onto. It's a character virtue that men and women looked at as a high priority. But somewhere in our culture today, that idea of loyalty has kind of gone by the wayside. The, the place that we see it the most kind of in sports, right? Where, where an athlete is going from team to team where they can get the most money, not necessarily where they're connected with other players who can win a championship. Loyalty is a characteristic that we've kind of lost track of and value of. And yet it's one that helps us move forward towards victory when we know that someone has our back. Loyalty. It's interesting, when you read in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 6. In Joshua chapter 6, the, the, the people of Israel are surround, they're, they're near the city of Jericho, which literally is not that far away from Jerusalem. And they're, they're, they're ready to attack Jericho. And so Joshua calls the leaders together. He says, come in, come in, get close, guys. Here's the battle plan. Here's the plan that we're going to do to defeat Jericho. You ready? Here it is. Okay. So we're going to take everybody. And for the next six days, we're going to march every single day. You ready? This is great. We're going to march around the city of Jericho one time. And on the seventh day, 
we're going to march around the city of Jericho seven times. And on the seventh time, we're going to have all the band members just, in the first six, it's going to be silent. Nobody's going to say anything, no music. We're just going to quietly walk around it every day one time. Seventh day, on the seventh time, we're going to cheer, we're going to scream, the music's going to play, and that's how we're going to defeat Jericho. What do you think? I mean, literally, if it was you or me, we'd be sitting there going, hello, Joshua, cuckoo. Good, right? I mean, that's a nut job plan. That's a terrible idea, Joshua. But Joshua knew that the people were loyal to him. I mean, Joshua was following the greatest prophet who had ever lived. He was walking in the shoes of the greatest leader that Israel had ever had. And quite honestly, the only one they had ever had to that point. Moses, the great Moses, and now Joshua is the one in charge. You want to talk about somebody who, who maybe was facing a little bit of anxiety. And yet in Joshua chapter 1, we read that God says, Joshua, listen, listen, I will be with you. I will be with you. Be strong and courageous three times. God says, and I kind of imagine that he had to say that three times because Joshua's a little nervous, a little anxious that he is now assuming the role of leader of this entire nation of people getting ready to go into the promised land. And he says, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now watch what happens in Joshua chapter 1. The reason why Joshua could be confident in Joshua chapter 6 in such a weird plan of marching around a, a city and that's how we're going to defeat him, the reason he could be confident is he knew the people had his back. In Joshua 1, it says that the people answered Joshua, whatever you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them, will be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. The people of Israel in chapter 1 literally told Joshua, we got your back. Whatever God commands you to do and to lead us, we will follow. And then they affirm what God said to him, only be strong and courageous. In fact, they were so behind Joshua, they were so loyal to Joshua that they said, whoever rebels against your word and does not obey it, whatever you may command them will be put to death. I'm trying to get our staff to buy into this. Okay, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, mostly. Okay, but come on. If you knew, like Joshua, if you knew that people had your back, wouldn't you gain confidence? Wouldn't you have confidence in what God was saying to you and to move forward when you knew that there were, there, that there were people there who had your back? When you knew that there were people there who were praying for you? When you knew that there were people there who, when you tripped and fell, were, were standing right next to you with a hand down, willing to reach down and pick you up, dust you off, and encourage you to move forward. Loyalty. I'm going to tell you what, man. Part of the problem in the church today is we have a lack of loyalty. 
we're so content with attacking each other that we can't attack the forces of evil that Scripture tells about because we're too busy yakking at each other, throwing bombs at each other, throwing words and arrows of, 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 of death towards each other. We're completely happy fighting against one another in the name of Jesus. And we can't fight against evil and darkness. And that's not what God has called us to do. Jesus said in John 13, he said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Loyalty for us comes from a place of love. That doesn't mean I always agree with you. And it doesn't mean that you always agree with me. But I'm going to tell you what, even when we, we agree on foundational principles, if you know what I'm, I'm talking about, then you need to go and just, just look at, at uh, the Apostles' Creed. That's what we agree on. Everything outside of that, I mean, it's details. And you and I, we may disagree about some things, but one thing you can know for sure is I got your back. I got your back. In those times, I'll pray for you. In those times, I will do everything I can to be with you. In those times when you stumble and fall, man, I want to be there reaching down with my hand to lift you up, dust you off, and encourage you forward. Loyalty. If you had someone protecting your backside like Joshua had protecting his, wouldn't you move forward? Wouldn't you be confident in moving forward? And that's what God has called us to do. Because if we do not move forward together, we will be scattered like sheep. Or as Benjamin Franklin supposedly said when they were signing the Declaration of Independence, he said, we must all hang together or assuredly, we will all hang separately. And the price is much worse for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. We have got to be together. So you have to ask yourself this question. Who is your battle against? Is it against those people that go to that church over there? Is your battle against those people who keep telling you you should wear a mask and get shots? Is your, is your battle against those people over there who tell you you shouldn't wear a mask and should, you know, shouldn't or should get shots? What, who's your battle against? Finally, the last thing is this. So we talked about sacrifice. We talked about loyalty. The last thing is this, and it's passion. It's passion. The men who stormed those beaches of Normandy had a passion for freedom and for life. The children of Israel, as they marched around Jericho, one time a day in silence for six days, and on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times, and on the seventh time, they screamed and shouted, and the music played, and they sang, and the walls, as we all know, as we listen to the John Cougar Mellencamp song, the walls came tumbling down. They were passionate about their relationship with God and to get into the promised land. So the question for you and me is, what are we passionate about? What are you passionate about? When people look at Doug Swink, I, 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 I know that, that people who know me are going to go, whoo, Doug is passionate about barbecue. That boy loves to barbecue. Doug is passionate about blackberry jam, loves blackberry jam, hint, hint, okay? 
Dougie's passionate about baseball. He's passionate about the band U2. But more than any of those things, I would hope that people would say, Doug is passionate in his relationship with Jesus. Doug is passionately in love with Jesus Christ. Man, I hope, more, I hope all that other stuff would pale in comparison to my love for Jesus. The biggest thing against Christianity is Christians. Because we don't live in the passion that we should have. In fact, Julian, the Roman emperor, said this about Christians. He said, if you looked at these Christians closely, hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted all, they brewed their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they don't see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desire is to renounce and to suffer that they may come and die. Who wants to be around people like that? I mean, that's disgusting. I don't want to be. And some of you know people like that, right? Some of you know me. And what do you do? You kind of try to swerve the car away from them to avoid. Well, maybe Adam, okay? But you try to stay away from people like that. I want to be like this. I like this quote, be the flame, not the moth. Be the flame, not the moth. That's what I want to be. I want to be the flame. I want to be Tigger. Bouncy, trouncy, flouncy, pouncy, fun, 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 fun. That's what we as followers of Christ should be like. We should not be Eeyore, okay? We should be the ones that are attracting people. As Peter talked about in 1 Peter 1, 8, 9, he says that you have this inexpressible and glorious joy that comes from your salvation. That should encourage us to see life with joy. And even in the times when we're struggling, even in the times when things are are, are rough and not good, people are watching to see how we're living our lives. Because they're connecting with what we believe with what we do. I love what Nelson Mandela said. Nelson Mandela is one of my heroes. And he said this, there is no passion to be found in playing small, in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. And I I would kind of amend that a little bit for those of us who are followers of Christ in settling for a life that is less than the one you are created to live. We of all people should have joy. We of all people should be walking this life spreading joy because our outcome is secure if we're following Christ. So three questions. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. Three questions for you and I to contemplate on this day. 77 years ago as the Allies stormed the beaches, June 6, 1944, excuse me, 74 years later, as we look at the war that's raging around us in the heavenly realms, three questions for us to contemplate when we talk about sacrifice, loyalty, and passion. The first question is this. The first question is, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? The second question, would people describe your love for Jesus as passionate? Why or why not? When they look at you, would they describe your relationship with Jesus as passionate? And number three, how would they know? How would they know 
See, love takes action. Lip service is not enough. At some point, we have to prove the truth of the love we talk about. So the question for you is, how would they know? Father, thank you for this morning and this opportunity to be together and to worship you. And God, I just pray this morning as we kind of evaluate our lives in the scope of eternity and the fact that you gave the example of what it means to sacrifice because you loved us so much. Lord, what are you calling us to sacrifice? And God, am I, am I loyal to my brothers and sisters? Or am I stabbing some of them in the back with the things I say and do? Father, help me to be loyal. And Lord, I pray for passion that people outside of this church would see my love for you and how I live life and how I sacrifice for them. God, may you be blessed by your church because, God, we worship you. Great are you, Lord, and worthy of our praise. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.